All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Welcome to this episode of Making the Argument. I've got my coffee mug that my wife got me for my birthday, Nick's Ugly Mug. Yes, today we're going to do something a little bit different. We got invited to go and speak to students at the University of Virginia, Charlottesville. And uh, we had a, some time to talk about conservative philosophy, how we should defend that philosophy. But we spent most of the time answering questions from students. And they had some great questions. Everything from what sort of tactics should be used to how does a young conservative navigate the difficult and often highly left-wing environment of the college university. We also got to ask some questions on whether or not University of Virginia should abandon its ties to Thomas Jefferson, who was the founder of the university. And then finally, the students voted on whether or not I should keep my beard. So if you want to find out what they decided, hang around to the end. Anyway, thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Oh, thank you very much. Well, hey, thank you all. Can you all hear me all right? I do, I do a fairly decent job projecting that's a combination of the military and um, having three kids on 10 acres. So there's a, there's a fair amount of projecting that goes on around my house. Um, listen, I, I can't thank you guys enough uh, for all the you know, people that I've worked with uh, from the UVA College Republicans. Um, you guys really have been one of the most active groups in the Commonwealth of Virginia on a lot of different election campaigns and a lot of different other efforts too on, on policy issues, uh, which is incredibly important. Um, what I'll do today is I'll talk a little bit about just kind of, you know, my view of Republican philosophy, uh, talk a little bit about this last legislative session. Obviously, we have some pretty important uh, election cycles coming up both this year and next year. Uh, but really what I like to do is I like to leave it open for as much uh, Q&A as possible, because uh, I'd much rather talk about what you guys want to talk about instead of just assuming you want to listen to whatever I've come up with. Um, so let, let me start off with a quick story. Um, I was talking to a, and, and the reason why I tell you this story is because it actually kind of illustrates something about how I look at government. Um, so I was talking to a youth organization, and a great conversation, very smart kids. They were all in, uh, you know, high school, uh, most of them juniors and seniors. And uh, one young lady was asking me about energy policy, and specifically green energy and protecting the environment, uh, climate change, et cetera. And uh, as she was going through about what she was concerned about, what she wanted to do, I said, you know, look, there's, there's a thousand different ways you can actually address this issue. Um, you can come up with a more efficient solar panel. You can come up with, you know, different wind turbines. There's all kinds of different green energy technology that's really exciting that could really enhance its place within the marketplace. And she goes, well, no, 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 what I, what I want is a law. And I said, oh, you want to hurt people for noncompliance. Oh, well, that's different. Yeah, that's easy. How bad do you want to hurt them? 
Do you want to take their money? Do you want to, do you want to I don't know, close down their business? Uh, do you want to fine them? Do you want to put them in jail? Do you want to take away their kids? I mean, there's all kinds of things we can do. We are the government. We got the machine guns. And she kind of looks at me a little bit stunned. She's like, I don't want to do any of that. I said, oh, well, that's what we do here. So that's the government's approach to solving problems. Now, there are times where that may very well be appropriate. Guaranteed, if someone is trying to kick in your door at 2 o'clock in the morning, you want the police to show up with a little bit of violence, right? And it's not to say the government doesn't have an important role to play within society. But what's really critical to understand is that at the end of the day, what makes the government unique from every other institution within society is not that you get to vote, it's not that we have committees, it's not that we debate issues, um, it's not that we have a leadership structure that you can apply toward various problems. We get to use force and coercion in order to achieve our end states. Aggressive force and coercion. And nobody else within society gets to do that. So you have to be very careful about what problems you're going to hand over to a room full of politicians and or bureaucrats in order to solve for you. Because guaranteed, they're not going to be overly responsive to consumer demand if they've made a bad decision. There's a lot of stupid laws, and there's a lot of painful laws, and there's a lot of unjust laws that stayed on the books for decades in this country. Because people thought that the best way to solve a particular problem or to achieve a particular in-state was by giving more power to politicians. Now again, I don't doubt for a second that there are times where that is appropriate. But I tend to focus on involuntary human interaction for government intervention as opposed to voluntary human interaction. Living in a free society is not getting to vote for your representatives every two to four years. If that's the limit, if that's the definition of what it means to be in a free society, you see this emphasis all the time now on democracy, democracy, democracy. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in a constitutional republic that uses democratic processes to select our leaders and to go through the legislative process. But if the only thing special about us is that we get to elect people, that's not a free society. Believe me, the United States military sent me to a lot of countries all over the world that had democracy. But they didn't respect individual liberty. They didn't respect property rights. They didn't respect limitations on government power. And the end result is that version of freedom became whatever the ruling party or the person that happened to be at the top of the political food chain decided freedom was. And everything about our country from the very beginning, even though we have not perfectly executed it, nor will we probably ever perfectly execute it, that's why it says in the Constitution, in order to create a more perfect union. But the foundational principle was not on this idea that it's all going to be okay as soon as you get to elect your representatives. No, we're going to maximize individual liberty with the understanding that personal responsibility is a necessary component of that. And so there's a lot of things that I end up seeing legislation-wise where people come up and be like, how could you possibly vote no against that? I don't think it's a legitimate function of government. The other example I use is that if my car is broken, I don't take it to the dentist. It's not because my dentist is a mean person or doesn't care about the fact that my car doesn't work. It's, that's not their function. And it would be absurd for me to take my broken car to the dentist and when it doesn't get fixed, get mad at the dentist 
and come to the conclusion that what I really need is a better dentist. No, I, I need to take the car to the appropriate place to fix it. And what I'm here to tell you is the wonderful thing about the United States, and I've been to a lot of other places all over the world, the wonderful thing about the United States is the amount of freedom you have as an individual to work in voluntary cooperation with other free individuals in order to solve problems. Because genuine coexistence is not a bumper sticker you put on your car. It's resisting the urge to coerce those whom you can't convince. And recognizing that as good as you think your idea might be, and as good as it may very well be for a particular problem, at a particular place, in a particular time, that doesn't mean that the next logical step is to therefore impose it on 330 million Americans or 8.5 million Virginians. And so people say, I take a hands-off version toward government. No, I try to take a humble approach toward government power, making sure that it focuses on the things that it was designed to do and not interfere in a lot of the things that it isn't. And one of the things that was great about this last legislative session, at least on the Virginia House of Delegates side, is for the first time I've been in the General Assembly, and I've been there seven years now, I actually had a governor that would sign my bills. <laughs> right? And Governor Yunkin stood strong on a whole host of issues. And sometimes you always wonder about somebody when it's their first foray into politics, right? Because it's easy to say a lot of things when you're trying to get elected. The question is, is will they do it when they actually get into office? And I've been incredibly impressed by Governor Yunkin's willingness to stand by what he campaigned on. This unique concept that if you ran on a particular platform and people elected you because of it, that maybe, just for fun, we should try implementing that platform instead of immediately running away from it because the press doesn't like us. I got news for you. You're, you're, I mean, you guys don't need this news. You're a Republican on a college campus, right? <laughs> A lot, of the, a lot of popular culture doesn't necessarily like us. We get our views caricatured constantly. And that's not to say that it doesn't happen to the other side as well. But let's be honest here. Chances are, if you're watching something on Netflix or you're listening to something on Spotify or you're listening to a news report, it's probably reinforcing the other worldview, not necessarily ours. And that's frustrating, but it also gives us an opportunity to actually hone our arguments and be good representatives for what it is that we believe. So this last session, we got to show a pretty stark contrast with respect to what we believe versus the other competing worldview, because the Democrats still control the Senate. And so we had a lot of really good legislation that was part of Youngkin's agenda, that was part of Winston Sears' agenda, that was a part of Jason Mears' agenda, that was part of the House agenda with our Speaker Todd Gilbert on everything from reducing taxes, reducing regulations, making it easier to open a business, making it easier to get a job, rolling back restrictions, trying to pass more legislation, actually giving teeth to your ability to engage in freedom of speech on a college campus, and to be able to hold administrators responsible when they restrict that speech or come up with some sort of barrier that makes it more expensive for a conservative to come to speak rather than somebody else. All of it passed through the House and then went and died in the Senate, with very few exceptions. And so there's some people that have, have tried to say, well, Governor Yunkin needs to use executive power in order to do ex to the extent that he can within the confines of the Constitution. I absolutely agree with that. But one of the things that we value as Republicans is that the process matters. 
And we can't give in to the temptation that when we don't get our way legislatively, that the next step is, that's okay, we'll just have the executive branch do things that it was never designed to do, nor is it constitutionally authorized to do. And what that means is that this next election cycle on the federal level, we desperately need to take back the House and the Senate. Next year on the state level, we have to maintain the House and we have to take back the Virginia Senate. Otherwise, we're going to do exactly what happened for the last year. We're going to have a bunch of good, solid legislation that all of us ran on, that all of us got elected on, and then it's going to go die in the Senate. The other thing I'll say, and then I'll go into questions. Um, I, I contend that one of the major reasons that we find ourselves in this situation right now is not because we gave up the political fight. It's because we gave up the cultural fight. So I always tend to ask this to a room full of students. How many people here, anybody majoring in anything within the arts, entertainment, journalism, anything in that category? How many of you are undeclared? All right, good. Consider arts, entertainment, media. <laughs> the reason why I say that um, is because politics is ultimately downstream from culture. And when the cultural institutions are all pushing in a particular way, it becomes very easy for us to feel isolated. Even if a majority of the country, on a one-to-one -one basis when you're speaking with them, agrees with you on core issues, on everything from tax or regulatory reform, on individual liberties, on greater parental participation in schools, greater school choice, even if they agree with you that if the culture is automatically sounding this drumbeat constantly, incessantly, all of the time, what it does is it causes people to first not say anything and then repeat the mantra of what they're hearing because socially they don't want to pay a price for going against the grain. And that leads me to my final point, I promise. Um, I've grown very tired of people telling me I'm going to fight for this or I'm going to fight for that. Because usually what they mean is I'm going to get mad on Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or TikTok. The question I've started to ask people is what are you willing to sacrifice for? And I know that's kind of a downer question, especially you guys are at the beginning of your life. You're here at a very prestigious university. You're all wondering about the things that you're going to do career-wise, family-wise all of that, and that's good, you should. But when politicians like to get up there and, and wax intellectually about the long arc of history bending toward justice, that's garbage. It doesn't bend toward justice. People bend it toward justice. People choose to bend it toward justice, usually because they've experienced something so horrible that the idea of sitting on the sidelines and letting it continue to happen is, becomes completely unacceptable. And in most cases in human history, it's required something truly devastating and on some levels evil for people to be snapped out of complacency in order to actually deal with it. Please believe me when I tell you that what we have in this country is truly special and unique. That's not to say that everywhere else in the world is horrible. It's not. There's beautiful places. There's wonderful countries. But there is something unique and special about this place. And relying on the long arc of history to maintain it is not only lazy, it's foolish.
It's something that you make a decision to defend. It's something that you make a decision that you're willing to sacrifice for. And for me personally, it's about going back and remembering going to funerals of friends of mine and watching their two daughters carry the flag that represented their father. I don't get to be complacent. For the rest of my life, I don't get to be complacent. Because I came home and he didn't. And if I let his daughters grow up in a country any less worthy of the sacrifice he gave to protect it, I failed. And I am a man of faith, and I do believe I'll see him again, and I don't want to be ashamed of being in his presence. So whatever it is for you, whatever that moment is, whatever that imagery is, whatever that experience is, that you need to grab and hold on to when it gets difficult, when it gets hard, when there's a price to pay for standing up for what you believe in, you hold on to that, and you do it anyway. And you decide that you're going to do it before you ever get into the situation. Don't live your life as if you just have to react to the events that are taking place as if it is completely within, beyond your control. That is something that so many other people try to tell you so that they can control their lives for you. Make the decision of how you're going to, how you're going to behave, how you're going to react, what you're going to do, and decide right now that you are going to be brave in that moment. And you'll find that you can be. All right, I'll stop there. Um, questions? Awesome. Just speaking, awesome, okay. Well, thank you, Delegate Freitas, for coming out. We were honestly really appreciate it. And of course, we were really excited to have you. You're speaking to an auditorium full of students that are very engaged and very hopeful for a brighter future, not only for their commonwealth, but also for their nation as a whole. As a student body, we don't always have the time that we'd like to be able to give to the things that mean the most to us. So how, as individuals with limited means and limited opportunities to help, can we support our local, state, even national legislators so that they can make the biggest difference in our lives? So that's a great question. There's a couple of ways. First of all, and I don't just, this is going to sound very convenient, right? But joining organizations like this, actually, that helps a lot. That's, that's a big answer to that question because you're always going to be more powerful as operating as part of a team or as an organization than you are purely as an individual, right? We all just kind of intuitively understand that. And when you have organizations that are well established, that know the legislators, that, that understand the legislative process, it helps make you more effective with the time that you can, uh, you know, donate to that. Um, the other thing I will tell people is, you know, if, if you look at a lot of Republican committees, um, you know, the average age is not in the 20s. <laughs> All right. Um, what that means is when it does come campaign season time, door knocking, which is hands down the most effective bang for your buck method of campaigning. I cannot tell you how much money has been spent on analyzing different types. I think we took, we did one study that was financed with $50,000, not me personally, but um, $50,000, we looked at something like 25 different types of campaigning from television commercials, mailers, texting, everything. The number one 
was face-to-face -face contact with the candidate. Number two was face-to-face -face contact with somebody that is a representative of the campaign. Door knocking is huge. Um, so that, that, is, that is a big one where you can really, that, that's a huge impact. Um, the other thing I will tell people is that, look, doing this should not be, there, there are always, there's what I call trench work, right? It's the stuff that we all know has to be done that we don't particularly love, right? But then there's other stuff. You have talents. You have skill sets. You have things that you're good at. You have connections. You have networks. Find the thing that you're really good at, right? There's what I like to say, you know the thing that God put you on earth to do, right? You're just good at it. You enjoy it. It's wonderful. You're probably considering it on some level as a career or whatever it is. Do that, advance it, and then put it to use on something that you value. Put, put it in service to a cause that you care about. So it's not all drudgery, right? I mean, the bottom line is if, if this is always drudgery, you're not going to do it for very long. Right? But if you can find something that you, you're truly passionate about, it might be an issue. Um, it might be that you're an excellent writer. It might be that you have video editing skills. Uh, you know, it, it could be. An, it might be that you're really good at hosting parties. Seriously, the, the for the love of all that is holy, the Republican Party could really use some people that are actually good at hosting events that people would like to attend. <laughs> right? Um, it's. I, I'm. I'm thrilled that we we are very very focused on making good, strong, analytical arguments for what we believe. Can we also have a good time? That would be. That would be super. Right. So, um, if you have these different skill sets, find find ways to use that in service to the cause. Okay. You talk about a culture shift that needs to happen within the United States. I personally like to think of it as Virginia, born, raised, and that's what matters to me. Where does that culture shift come from? Does it come from education and in your career? Are there any moments that have really stood out to you where you felt you've made a noticeable difference? Oh, gosh. So I'll say that to answer the first question, because that's the easier one. Um, the, the first question, people ask me, like, if there, was one, if there was one hill to die on, where it's like, all right, you're going to get what you want, but you're done after that. It would be education reform every day of the week and twice on Sunday. I don't even got to think. It'd be education reform. Because... You know, again, this, let me, I use this example. If you've already heard it before, I apologize. Actually, I don't. It's a great example, and you should hear it at least twice. So here's how it works. Let's imagine that the government really wanted to help hungry people, right? And so the government came up with this great idea, and here's what it's going to do. It's going to open up 10,000 local government grocery stores all over the country, and then it's going to assign you a government grocery store based off of your address. Now, when you show up to the government grocery store, you won't actually select your groceries. No, no, no. Your groceries will be determined based off of a board, and that board, based off of things like caloric intake and the food pyramid and all that, they'll decide what goes into your grocery bag. Now, if you don't like something in your grocery bag, not a problem. You just need to show up to a series of local, state, and federal boards, probably over about a four to six potentially eight-year period in order to convince them to put something new in your grocery bag or take something out of your grocery bag while the Oreo lobby and the Kraft macaroni and cheese lobby descend on those same places in order to argue for their privileged place within the grocery bag. Oh, by the way, none of the employees working at this government grocery store will ever be rewarded based off of their creativity, ingenuity, or work ethic. They will only be rewarded based off of seniority. Does anybody think that would be a good way to run a grocery store or feed hungry people. And yet it's exactly what we did with public education. 
You are assigned a government school based off of your address. When you show up to the government school, you have little to no say over your course curriculum. If you want to change something with the course curriculum, good luck. Show up to school board meetings, show up to state legislative meetings, maybe show up to federal meetings for some of the funding. And none of your teachers are rewarded based off of creativity, ingenuity, or work ethic. They're only rewarded based off of seniority. We have an education system that, was that is based off of a Prussian model that was designed to make really good conscripts and factory workers. It wasn't designed to make good entrepreneurs. It wasn't designed to make good free thinkers. So yeah, if there's one thing that I could change, it would be drastically changing the way we look at education. It would be to free up that system. Now the compromise I'm willing to make is that if government's still gonna be involved, fine. They can help with the financing process. Dollars can follow students. But when we wanted to help hungry people, we didn't open up 10,000 government grocery stores. We gave you a voucher for food and let you go into the private sector and find what worked best for you. And I don't see why we can't do something similar. Not to mention the fact that, let's face it, if we actually had a massive market for education, the ideas that, that would come forward, the, the new innovations that would all of a sudden become available to, to everybody, to every student, I think would just be absolutely phenomenal. So that's, that's the biggest one that I would say culturally um, that, that you know, is important to me. Um, on impacts that I, you know, I might or might not have had, um, there's, there's been time, I, I spend a lot of time trying to formulate good debates and trying to make good arguments, whether it's on our, you know, our, our Making the Argument podcast or whether it's been on the House floor. And there's definitely been times where I've thought, I, I gave a speech in 2018 on the Second Amendment, and um, I thought I gave a fairly decent one. And uh, all of my Democratic colleagues, four of them, I think three or four of them left the floor in tears, and then the entire Democrat caucus requested a 15-minute recess to gather their composure, and then came back for the next two to three days. Now, keep in mind, this was a gun speech. It was a speech on just protecting Second Amendment rights and why we think personal being able to defend yourself is important. And for the next three days, what do you think I got called? Anybody? No guesses? Hey, racist, right? What does every Republican get called whenever they oppose anything from the Democrats? You're obviously a sexist, bigoted, racist, homophobe. If there's a phobe, apparently we got it, right? Um, and and I, remember, I remember that moment thinking to myself, did I screw up? Did I do something? Because I, I really was trying to be very careful on what I said and how I organized it. Um, and I asked them, I'm like, why, why did you think that was racist? Like, well, you talked about single-parent households. Like, you mean like the one I grew up in? See, it was just automatically assumed. I couldn't have any conception of what I was talking about when I was talking about some of the underlying social problems that we have in this country. When you have a whole generation of young men growing up in an environment where fathers have completely dropped the ball, walked out on their families, and have not raised young men how to be proper young men. But no, no, that was racist. No, it isn't. That's a plague that affects everybody. But anyways, we started to get hammered in the press. We started to get hammered by the left, so we put it online. And about 100 million views later, we realized we had a lot more people standing with us than we thought. Um, and that's why I also tell people, like, you have to be willing to get out there and say something, even if it's going to cause you problems right there in the moment. Because a lot of times you being willing to say something, to, to stand up for what you believe, causes other people to have courage and recognize they're not alone. So I hope that had that effect in that moment.
Hey, good evening, sir. My name's Luciano Mateo. Um, just quick question. I was wondering how your transition into politics from the military was, and how long was it? Was it like immediately once you got back into uh, the civilian life, or uh, did you have to think about it a little bit? And then, how did you exactly do that? Sure. So um, it's it's funny. I tell people. So in the military, I was Army Special Forces, better known as Green Berets. Our specialty is unconventional warfare and counterinsurgency. And I always tell people, nothing prepares you for domestic politics like a career in unconventional warfare and counterinsurgency. Um, what happened was I, I, I got out of the military. I moved to Virginia. Um, I actually worked on Senator Bryce Reeves' uh, first campaign, his very first campaign. And um, got to be friends and started to get more involved with my local Republican committee. Um, I got asked if I would run for the House of Delegates. I said, no, why the heck would anybody want to do that? Um, and then two years later, I got asked again. And my wife, who originally was like, I do not want you running for office. Um, she goes, we, we've given up enough time after 10 years in the military, you know, multiple deployments, two combat tours. Uh, first 10 years of my marriage, I was gone for five of them. Uh, so I missed a lot of stuff. And um, it was that second time around that her and Christian Hines, who actually works for me, both of them were adamant, like, look, um, you know, you, you say you care about this. You say you want to make an argument for what we believe. You say you think Republicans need to be represented a certain way, and you're being asked to do this. You didn't raise your hand and ask to do it. So if you turn this down, shut up. Okay. <laughs> so I, I ended up running, and I was, actually I was running against an incumbent. Um, he decided to retire, and then... Nobody else got in the race. And so my first election, I ran unopposed. And can I tell you something right now? Can I tell you a little secret about politics? If you're going to run, run unopposed. It's awesome. <laughs> um, but that was the first and only time that happened. But no, it wasn't, it wasn't right away. I, I got out of the military in 2009. I got elected in two, 2015. 2016 was my, was my first, um, first legislative session. Awesome. No problem. Hi, yeah, as a state politician, what issues do you think are of particular importance to us as Virginians? Mm -hmm. And connected to that, I heard you had a bill regarding ABC stores. Is that related <laughs> to Virginians, perhaps? Yeah, so um, I, I've been accused of having something of a uh, libertarian streak. Um, I, I prefer to call it a liberty streak, because um, I've been a Republican since I could vote. Um, so I, I do think education legislation is incredibly important. I, also, another one out there that I think is, is important um, are things like occupational licensing reform. And that's, that's usually not something where you say occupational licensing reform, everyone like leans in like, ooh, tell me more, right? But if you, if you think about it, um, there, there's this idea, hey, I'm at UVA, I'm gonna say something controversial. A lot of people think that Democrats are socialist. Most of them are not. Most of them, when you look at their economic policy, it's not socialist, it's fascist. Now, when I say fascist, you think Nazis. I didn't say Nazis. I didn't say Nazism. I didn't say Nazis, you know, National Socialism. Go read the fascist manifesto that was published in like 2017. And one of the big things that you're going to see about that is they didn't want to totally give up private sector control of the means of production, right? That's socialism. Socialism is the public ownership of the means of production. Fascism said you can still own it, but the government's gonna run it through cartels and through various 
boards that are made up of labor and made up of you know, managers and made up of politicians and made up of experts, right? So when you start to look at a lot of these different economic policies, what's it all focused on? It's like, oh, no, 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 you can still own your business, but we're going to decide which businesses can stay open in a crisis. And we're going to decide which businesses get certain handouts and which don't, and which get certain privileges and which don't. And oh yeah, we'd be, happy to sign, we'd be happy to sign on to this safety regulation that the big business can handle, but all the small businesses can't, right? So I look a lot for the regulatory policy, and, and because to me that's really important. It ends up, there, so much of your life is controlled by regulators, not even your elected representatives, because your elected representative signed off on a bill that was very broad in scope, then handed it over to a regulatory agent, and they made all the rules. So the regulatory, compliant, the regulatory side is very important to me. The education side is very important to me. When it comes to the ABC, so I've carried a lot of legislation that's trying to make it easier for like our distillers, our breweries, our wineries, stuff like that. And then last year, I was like, or this year actually, I was like, you know what, screw it. This thing shouldn't even exist. So I carried a bill to get rid of the ABC because it shouldn't exist. Prohibition ended like 100 years ago. I don't need the government telling me where to get whiskey right? Um, I don't need the government being involved in that, that sort of decision. That is a transaction that I, as an adult, can make with another adult, and I require no government intervention into it. I feel the same way about food freedom. I think it's ridiculous that raw milk is illegal in Virginia, unless you own a cow share. So you can't buy raw milk, but you can buy part of the dairy cow. I don't know which udder is yours, but and then when they, make, when they do the milk, then you can have the milk. But they didn't sell you the milk. You just rented the udder. We're talking about supply chain crisis. We're talking about you know, shortages. The same people that are complaining that Ukraine were, were in for you know, famines in certain parts of the world as a result of it are also the ones that want to heavily restrict your ability to go to your neighbor and buy food. That's stupid. So when it comes to a lot of regulations like that, and the ABC is one of them, by the way, both sides, if you wanted to see an excellent example of bipartisanship enrichment, bipartisanship, Republicans and Democrats coming together to kill a bill, <laughs> it was mine when I tried to get rid of the ABC. <laughs> Um, as you mentioned before, being a Republican on a college campus is fairly controversial. So, especially as a first year myself, like, what's some advice or how can I navigate trying to have discussions with people or be active about um, my thoughts and opinions without getting like socially smashed every single time I try to have a conversation yeah. with somebody? Yeah. So, so the, the first thing I would tell you is that you've got to look at this to some degree as, as practice. Uh, college can be very, very useful, very, very important. It is not life. Right, so you'll make good friendships here, but most of the people you meet in college, you're not gonna hang out with once you leave here. So it's not worth your values, it's not worth your honor, it's not worth your integrity, nothing is, right? Um, but when it comes to just being able to have productive conversations, one of the things that I like, to, I, I like to advise people on is ask questions. The moment you step in with, well, this is what I believe or what you believe is stupid or whatnot, automatically there's, there's a certain degree of hostility there. Interestingly enough, um, and I actually got this talking to a couple of different counselors, um, just talking about the whole idea of like human psychology and interaction. Asking what is actually better than asking why. So if you ask someone, why did you do that? You get defensive. 
If you ask someone, so what led you to that conclusion? Or what made you, what made you think that way? There's something about, like, even when I asked it out loud, right? Right? All of a sudden, your mind kind of operates a little bit differently. When you hear why, you almost get a little bit defensive, like you got to defend something. When it's what, it's almost like you're helping someone better understand what you believe about something. So when you ask somebody, okay, well, what, what makes you say that? Or, or, you know, what led you to that conclusion? They'll start to talk about what they believe, why they believe it, and then you can ask additional questions. Now, there's, there's a couple things, like, there's a, a logical term called reductio ad absurdum, right, which is where you reduce your opponent's argument to absurdity. And a lot of times you can gently ask questions in such a way to where they come to a conclusion that, oh crap, <laughs> what, what I believe doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you put it that way. Um, the other thing I advise people is whenever possible, share, um, connect with someone on a personal level or with some sort of shared experience. It's really easy to demonize someone on social media precisely because you have no idea of what they're actually like in, in flesh and blood. Um, I, I have this one guy that comes on and trolls me constantly on Facebook, except when I talk about, why did my tomatoes not do a good job this year? Oh, well, man, yeah, it was because of this, this, and this. Oh, really? Because I tried that. Oh, okay, well, that's good. Did you do this? Oh, I'll try that next time. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to vote for me. Right? It doesn't mean he's going to change his mind. But it becomes harder to put the horns on me and like, oh, he's just a horrible human being that needs to die, right? So a lot of times connecting with people on those levels is, is important. Um, because we put a, a great deal of emphasis on, on logic and rational thought and being able to intellectually, um, rationally, empirically defend our arguments, that's all very, very good. It's all very, very necessary. It's also very, very, un, not, it's not personable. Um, sometimes people need to know why you believe something on a personal level, and then they're a little bit more cautious. The other thing that, the other thing, I've used this term before, um, <laughs> a lot of times the left puts themselves in the position where they're defending a victim. Um, sometimes when I get into a conversation, I'll put myself, because ultimately the reason why we believe in individual liberty and free markets is not just because, oh, it produces a wealthier society. It's because when you watch a first-time immigrant come to the United States who fled violent oppression and then all of a sudden in this country they're able to sit there and they're crying as they take their oath to become a U.S. citizen and they're crying as their child graduates from college because it's the first time anything ever happened before. That's who we're trying to protect. Right? I'm not trying to protect Art Laffer's tax policy with respect to the Laffer curve. I may have to understand it, I may have to debate for it, but I'm protecting that because running this poor guy out of business because you think politicians are going to do a better job spending his money on his behalf than he is, is immoral. You know, I, I'm what, I will make a moral argument for capitalism or free markets before I'll make a statistical one. So just to kind of sum that up, ask questions, think about how you're going to ask the question, share personal experiences that allow, that can kind of show, you know, degree of vulnerability that you're comfortable with, but humanizes you as you're having the discussion. And then always remember that at the end of the day, every single policy we passionately care about, there's a person at the end of the day that we're trying to protect. And they need to know that. And I, I think, again, for some people, it's never going to be good enough. Um, but I think those are good processes to use.
Okay, thank you for coming. I'd like to ask a question that may push back on your framing regarding your skepticism to use executive and I assume judicial power to pursue yeah. Republican ends. Mm -hmm. If you were to enter a boxing match and your opponent took off his gloves <laughs> and started fighting to the death, would it be worthwhile to continue boxing by the rules, sir? So I guess the question is, to what extreme do we take that? Right, because this is what it is. Like for everything that we talk about, what's the limiting principle? So for instance, if they have a judge that is a legal positivist, and so they, they don't take a, they don't see their role as faithfully interpreting the Constitution, they see their role as wringing out of the Constitution whatever policy objective they want. Is our solution therefore to elect the same sort of judge? Now some people will say, well, if they're doing it, we gotta do it too. Now, I can see a limited argument um, so, for instance, when Trump was doing tariffs, I am an adamant free trader. But Trump was saying, okay, if, we're gonna do, if, if you're going to raise your tariffs on us, we're going to raise tariffs on you, and if you lower your tariffs, we'll lower ours. You can make an argument that there's a certain degree of mutually assured destruction taking place there, and the hope is, is that the other side will recognize this is not a good way to do business and take corrective action. Here's what I want you to understand. What you're suggesting is poisoning in the hope that it'll kill the problem faster than it kills you. That's a dangerous game to play, right? So for instance, in 2020, I watched as Democrat politicians cheered on people that were running through cities, setting things on fire, looting small businesses, burning them to the ground, setting up autonomous zones, and murdering people. I don't think the response to that should be, well, if it works for them, <laughs> right? So that, that would be my question, is what is the limiting principle? The moment we start operating outside of the Constitution in order to achieve our objectives, I would argue to some degree you're already achieving their objective. Because they don't want constitutional limitations. They provide lip service to the Constitution when it suits their ends. I'm not talking about every Democrat. But a lot of the most prominent thinkers, you, you think for a second, AOC, Bernie Sanders, or Elizabeth Warren would have any compunction about getting rid and gutting about half of the Constitution tomorrow if it served their ends. I don't think they would. So if our solution is going to be, well, if it works for them, it, it, it should work for us, that's a very, very dangerous game to play. So I can see maybe some limited application for it, but I think it has to stay within constitutional boundaries. Otherwise, we're... We're going to lose, we're just going to be a part of the loss. Like, we're going to be partially responsible for it. Um, but it is, it's a difficult question. It's a difficult question. So, um, going back to your approach to government from a, you know, humility-driven approach, um, I just want to sort of focus in on some specific issues to see how it might apply. Um, so, obviously, right, uh, turning up the heat a little bit, for something like um, mass gun tragedies, school shootings, those really, um, you know, emotional issues that people are dealing with more and more. Where do you see and, and what do you think the approach should be from a government standpoint in prevention or reaction to things like I that? Think, I, I, think there's two, I think there's two obvious ways that the gov government can assist. One is if you're going to have government-run schools, well, then you need to have government-protected schools. And protection is not, this is a gun-free zone, right? That's not protection. So you need to be able to allocate resources in order to properly deal with, with that threat. To, to the best that you can in a reasonable manner. The other thing is, is that you actually prosecute, convict, and lock up violent criminals. Now, 
I'm someone that's carried criminal justice reform legislation before. Because I do think we, we have a lot of work to do within our prison system and within our criminal justice system. Um, by the same token, I have very little sympathy for people that hurt other human beings. That's why we have jail. We don't have jail because you smoked a joint. We have jail because you hurt another human being and now you've demonstrated you have to be separated until we can be reasonably sure you're not going to hurt human beings anymore. Right? So those are the two obvious things. Here's the problem with a lot of the measures that I see coming from the left with respect to the gun control. First of all, we have a massive amount of gun control in places like Chicago. It doesn't seem to be helping. Even in the places where they claim it helps, like Australia. They always like to throw out the statistic, we had a mass shooting in Australia, we did gun buyback programs, we did massive gun restrictions, and look, gun violence went down. Until you look at the statistics prior to the shooting and you realize it was already going down. So you can't get, even 538, which is a leftist center think tank, came out and said, yeah, you can't give credit to the, that particular gun legislation. Here's the other thing you have to take into consideration, right? 33,000 gun deaths a year in the United States. About 60% of those are suicides, okay? Another percentage is justifiable homicide, right? You're shooting someone to defend yourself, the police are shooting someone, it's a justifiable shooting. And then the other percentage is gang violence, which is committed by about 0.02% of the population within about 2% of America's cities, right? That's almost where all the, the crime is taking place, gun violence. Conservative estimates say that 500,000 times a year, an American citizen defends themselves with a firearm. Half a million. So when I take away your ability to own a firearm, right, or I severely curtail your ability to own a firearm, the question I have to ask is, have I really dissuaded this person that wants to commit an act of violence from doing so? Have I even really made it that much harder for them to get a, a, a weapon or a firearm? Right? That's what I hope will happen, but what I know will happen is the person over here definitely has less access to a firearm. And so the response I always give back is, when, when you've talked to a woman who owned a firearm, who knew how to use it, who had carried that firearm before, but was forced to leave it behind because they were going to a college, and when they went on the college campus, they got brutally raped in a parking lot within visual distance of a police unit. Now, I don't know what would have happened if she would have been allowed to be armed. But I know this much, she didn't get a choice. She didn't get a choice because a politician decided for her, you don't get this option. But I'm trained, doesn't matter. But I'm potentially in danger, doesn't matter. The politician made the decision for her and the politician is not the one paying the price of that decision. And so when I take that humble look at what government can actually achieve versus what we just hope it will achieve, the thing I always tell people to focus on, focus on the incentives that are created, not just the stated intentions. The incentive that is created in gun control is I'm gonna make it harder for people that are already predisposed to follow the law in order to get a firearm in the hopes that it will make it more difficult for somebody that intends to use it for a nefarious purpose. I don't think that's a very logical trade-off, and I don't think the numbers bear it out. Uh, Delegate Freitas, thank you for visiting tonight. Uh, it's unfortunate that in recent years, uh, our founder at UVA, Thomas Jefferson, has fallen to slander, uh, popularly through the student body. So uh, what do Thomas Jefferson's contributions and implications to conservatives, uh, conservatism mean to you, and what should it mean to all of us as students? Well, I'm a big fan of the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, here's, here's the issue when we talk about um, 
you know, most of our founders, especially of our founders from Virginia, right? Um, you know, Patrick Henry, George Washington, James Madison, who's my district, um, Thomas Jefferson, George Mason. Every time we say you've got to view history within a certain degree of context, we get told, oh, you're trying to whitewash history, uh, which is why I immediately call for the tearing down of the number one organization within the United States historically that has been the most powerful, most financed, most organized body in support of white supremacy, the Democratic Party. Now, nothing I just said is untrue. Everything I just said is historically accurate. But if I said that to one of your professors right now, don't you think the first thing they would say is, well, wait a second, there's some context there. Oh, you want context now. Excellent, let's have some context. When you look at Thomas Jefferson's contribution, first of all, I don't think we should ever surrender at all or, or allow our respect for Thomas Jefferson in any way, shape, or form to ever be used as a mechanism for glossing over the horror that slavery is. It's an evil institution. Um, racism is evil. I mean, I believe that as a dedicated Christian because I believe that everybody is created in the image of God and you have inherent worth. Regardless of anything you do, you have inherent worth because of that reason. And anybody that seeks to take it away or diminish it based on something like sex or skin color is engaging in an act of evil. When you look at what was going on in the late 18th century within the United States and you look at the ideas that they actually put into paper, Jefferson was aware of the fact that he was writing an inherent contradiction with respect to how he was living in his own life. He didn't know how to fix the problem in such a way that would actually keep the colonies at that point or the states together in order to actually fight against Great Britain. He didn't know how to solve that problem. And so it got put off. And to this day, we're paying the price for that. By the same token, <laughs> in 1776, to write down on a docu document with full conviction that all of us are created equal and entitled to certainly unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We see that now when we take it for granted, or, or we get frustrated that it's not perfectly applied in the way we want it. At that point, that was absurd. That was ridiculous to the vast majority of people that were living on this planet. In 1800, there was one billion people on the planet and 90% of them were living in complete abject poverty, most of them under some form of despotism or tyranny. And even in those countries where you did have some degree of individual liberty or property rights, it was still considered absurd that we're all created equal and that we're endowed by our creator, not granted by government, not granted based off of the class system that we might happen to occupy, and down by our creator with certain unalienable rights, the suggestion being that they cannot be arbitrarily taken away by the whims of a government. That was revolutionary. That was incredibly powerful. He sowed the seeds for slavery's destruction within that document, and if you don't want to take my word for it, go listen to what Frederick Douglass had to say about it when he talked both about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. 
at a time where you had people questioning the morality of these documents at all because slavery as an institution still existed. It was Frederick Douglass that stood up and said, when properly understood, the Constitution is a liberty document. And a part of that was because of the philosophical foundation that was given to it within the Declaration of Independence and penned by Thomas Jefferson. I think it's interesting that on Thomas Jefferson's tombstone, he didn't, he didn't want to be known for being president. He wanted to be known for being the president of this university. He wanted to be known for the Declaration of Independence, and he wanted to be known for the uh, Virginian uh, Statement of Rights. And critical in that was also religious freedom and freedom of conscience. If you can't go back to a particular time and actually understand the very real pressures that existed and what it meant for him to pen that, I don't know how to explain it to you unless you're actually going to have to experience it yourself. And I'll give one other example of this that, that I like to use, and that's the Prayer at Valley Forge. Have you ever seen that print, George Washington Prayer at Valley Forge? Whenever you see that, you probably think to yourself, that's George Washington, first president of the United States. He's the founder of our country, the father of our country. Victorious general of the Continental Army, the one that peacefully surrendered power afterwards, refused to run for more than a second term for president. Not at that moment. <laughs> at that moment, he was a failed general that had been kicked around. The Congress wasn't supporting his troops. He had most of his troops... He had about 25% of his force were diseased. They didn't have shoes. They were starving to death. Members of his own staff were actually working against him and trying to get him replaced. He went out there, he prayed, he got up, and he became the George Washington that we know today. Now, I would argue that we're significantly better off as a result of that, but if you want to chalk everything up to slavery, it's a fair critique. But is that the totality of his entire existence? And for all the people that are suggesting now that Thomas Jefferson should be torn down, wiped away, or erased, I would tell them be very careful about the sort of society you're creating. Because 50 to 100 years from now, I wouldn't be shocked to find out that various things that those people believe now will be considered reprehensible. How could they have ever thought that? So, we should be careful to learn the correct lessons from history. We should also do so in context and remember that the Founding Fathers, like everything else, are not deities. They were people. They made mistakes. But at great risk and personal sacrifice, they achieved something that was truly revolutionary in the course of human history. And if we forget that, we don't deserve the legacy they left us. Thank you. No problem. All right, Gina's doing this, and like this, and before she starts, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and stop. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Okay, real quick, real quick, go back. Beard or no beard? Beard. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. 
special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick. And once again, thank you for listening.